thank you so much for um, that lovely introduction. And um, thank you also to um, Maritza and to, to Felix um, for the, the technical support. And thank you to all of you who signed up for this call, 2,300 people, wow. I don't know that, um, I suppose broadcasting as a television news anchor and as a reporter, uh, you have Nielsen ratings and things like that. So people keep track of that, but I don't think of it that much. Um, and I guess it's just really humbling to kind of notice that uh, so many of you are interested, whether you're watching live or on the replay, um, that you're interested in this work. You may see my little cat people over there. Um, that's Maggie and Penny uh, coming in the, out of the call. So for those of you who are traumatized by cats, I apologize for those of you who like them. Um, they're, they're there and, uh, and with us also. And so part of what I wanna um, sort of just name and notice is that we are here together. And so um, I would like anyone who would like to put in the chat um, their sort of, you know, their name, if you'd like to add your pronouns, if you'd like to add where you're from, if you'd like to add perhaps what is it that, that, that brought you to this call today? What is it about it that perhaps spoke to you or was of interest to you? Um, I'm just curious because we're all at different points in our journey. We're certainly at a particular moment in time. And, um, you know, I think that this is just perhaps an opportunity to get to know one another because as we lean into doing this work, part of what it is that we're noticing can be supportive is doing this work together. It is difficult, I think, to do this work alone. It's challenging. And while we have different experiences, obviously, as people of color, Black Americans around the world, people of color who are marginalized based on white body supremacy or whiteness and domination and all of the things that go along with imperialism and colonialism, uh, we also recognize that uh, when we are joining uh, we can scaffold one another, we can support one another, we can recognize that we each have uh, unique experiences to wherever we are, and we also have uh, experiences that perhaps we can learn uh, from one another about. I see Corinne from Cincinnati, uh, moving so quickly, Barbara, Jocelyn, Brenda, uh, Sue, Kim, Karen, uh, San Francisco, folks from uh, Michigan, New York. Welcome to everyone, welcome to everyone. And please, um, you know, feel free to, to chat as we go if you like. I want to start by doing a, a, a land dedication and just a naming um, that I'm here actually in Massachusetts, although I live on Lenape and Canarsay land in uh, what is now known as Brooklyn uh, in the United States of America on Turtle Island. Uh, this is indigenous territory, First Nations territory. Here in Massachusetts, it's Nipmuc territory. And that territory is, um, is not something that was, was taken, was given. It was something that was uh, settled on, inhabited. And I am the recipient of um, being there. I, have, I carry privilege to, to be here right now, obviously. And I just wanted to name that. And you can actually also yourself, if you like, and I'll put this in the chat if you can find it. Um, this is a, a little map um, that you can use to, I just put it in the chat there, Felix, if you wanna be able to pull that up for folks. Um, you can find out where, um, you know, where you are, whose land are you on? And so, as I said, my name is 
Francesca Marguerite Maxime. I'm a Haitian Dominican, Italian American, multi ethnic woman, mixed race here on Nipmuc territory in Massachusetts. Uh, my pronouns are she, we, and us. They always used to be just she and her. And then I heard a friend of mine from my indigenous focusing oriented therapy training, uh, you know, use different pronouns, which included they and we and us. And I really was taken um, by that because part of what we're unpacking when we're interrogating whiteness and we're looking at the cultural somatics and, and the way in which we have been sort of taught this myth of meritocracy and rugged individual rugged individualism here, particularly in the West and in the United States where I'm hailing from, although it's beautiful to see our international audience, is that there's really this, um, this, this feeling of separation that we have that's really heralded, that's exalted in many ways of being able to do it on your own, of being the one who's able to just sort of uh, go forth and, and conquer. And within that is sort of a mentality of a hierarchy around someone's better and someone's worse, someone's winning and someone's losing. And, and we, we live that way. We live our lives that way. And it's part of what we inherit. And so in sort of naming these pronouns as uh, a cisgendered, heterosexual, multi-ethnic, Haitian-Dominican, Italian-American woman with the she, we, us, I'm inviting us to think about what is it like to move into a more collectivist mindset? What is it like to actually be more in connection with others? Because we know that that isolation and that feeling of separation is part of what pulls us apart internally and then externally. So as we start this, I'm just going to pause here and I'm going to invite us into a very short little grounding meditations so that we can actually feel our seat and our feet and welcome ourselves into our bodies into this period of space and time. Just taking a couple of mindful breaths here. Feeling our feet on the floor and our seat in the chair. Just recognizing I am not only on the earth, but I am of the earth. There is no separation. Feeling my feet on the floor, the weight of gravity pulling me down into my seat. Noticing that I am here, taking my seat in the midst of it all, noble and dignified relaxed and alert. I'm enough and I matter, no better or worse than anyone else. Here I am in the midst of it all. The embodiment of loving awareness, of consciousness, of spirit. Breathing in and breathing out, noticing the quality of the breath, whether it's long or short, warm or cool, dry or moist. Noticing sounds near or far, just being aware that there's a quality of hearing, hearing. And if our eyes are closed, we may notice that there may be a smell, the quality of smelling. If we've eaten breakfast or lunch, there may be residual qualities of the taste of something in our mouths. 
just noticing, bringing these into our awareness. And as we sit here together for our practice today, just maybe calling up an intention of something that you would like to bring more of into your life. What is it that perhaps could use some more of your attention? Might it be patience? Might it be courage? Might it be curiosity? What part of you would like to come forward that we can water as part of our intention today, the seed that we're planting? As we hold one another in this space where we begin to sort of look into what does it mean to be an embodied anti-racist? What does it mean to do some of this work? What does it mean to actually take a stand and to actually say, this is what I'm standing for? I'm not making an assumption that I'm not racist. I'm not defending myself in any way as being a good person or a bad person, one way or the other. I don't have to tell myself a story. I can just feel my feet on the floor, my seat in the chair. I'm enough and I matter, relaxed and dignified taking our seat in the midst of it all. Wishing for this time, the intention of well-being for all beings. All right. Yes, beautiful. Kajuka Jack, living on the Ataku River, Tlingit. I'm probably not saying this properly, living in the territory of my people in what is now known as Athland, BC, British Columbia. Beautiful. Welcome, everyone. And so maybe just coming back and from a somatic perspective, looking around the room, wherever you are, taking in what's here, orienting yourself to the present day. It's October 14th right now, maybe twisting the torso sort of checking around, saying, okay, I'm here in this room, whether it's my home or my office, and noticing how I'm actually seated in place and time here October 14th with everyone else. And if there's a resource that you see, maybe a plant or a picture or something that brings you joy, just maybe holding that lightly with your attention maybe holding your intention as part of the background of our attention, and then also perhaps whatever resource that you might have in your environment, and letting your body know we're just here together. So shifting maybe our attention now at this point to um, a little bit of what we're going to unpack today in this call, and then I'm going to take some questions, then I'll go over the course that we're going to be starting next week that you're invited to take, and then we're going to take some more questions and potentially do an experiential piece if anybody would like to volunteer for that. The first piece is how to avoid getting lost in the shame spiral. Now, this class, this course, this webinar in general, although I'm a multi-ethnic, multi-racial person, I'm a woman of color, or as my friend Resma Menekum says, a woman of culture, the global majority, 
I have had the lived embodied experience of essentially inheriting a lot of white privilege and a lot of light skin privilege in my lived experience, especially until the time that I was going to college. And so I know what it's like if any of you have watched the first uh, video of the free anti-racism video series uh, that we did, where I kind of talked about that experience and how I too was very much in favor of saying the all lives matter and didn't really understand why black lives matter and didn't really fully understand why a special attention needed to be paid to that. And so five years ago, when my mentor, Dr. Jack Cornfield, who is um, a well-known mindfulness teacher and somebody who had uh, sort of trained me in mindfulness and taught me a little bit about, hmm, maybe you wanna look into this uh, issue. Um, when I started unpacking, what is this issue of racism? Where does it come from? How is it like what the Buddha talks about when the Buddha talks about mindfulness and being able to have clear seeing and how the origins of suffering are often about pain and the truth of pain, but that the suffering comes from our inability to really recognize what's actually present and be here. And how the more that we can open to what's actually here and present, we can notice if we like it or don't like it, but that we can also then create and cultivate skillful, wise action from that place of where we started. Loving awareness, I'm enough and I matter. However, one of the things that gets in the way, and I'll speak from a, a perspective of, of white Westerners for the most part, in particular for this class, essentially white um, or light-bodied therapists who perhaps haven't fully interrogated whiteness as a construct or white supremacy, is that shame often gets in the way. We often find that when we talk about race or racism or issues pertaining to people of color, what I found in my direct experience is that oftentimes there's shame, a shutdown, kind of a somatic place where we kind of wanna pull away or don't feel like we're equipped or, or want to discuss it. There often can sometimes be grandiosity, which is sort of the opposite, which is this piece of defensiveness or anger. And there's just a lot of charge energetically and somatically and when we do talk about race often. And so part of what we'll learn in the course and part of what I think has been particularly helpful for me to be able to do some of this deep dive is to notice what's happening within our nervous system and the sensations that are around it and name them mindfully as sensation. Oh, there's a little bit of tightness in my chest right here. There's a little bit of a lump in my throat right here. Can I say hello to that? Can I just name it and note it? And can I also come back to this place of I'm enough and I matter. I have a beautiful conscious awareness and I'm noticing that there are these sensations here in my body that normally I may tie something to which might be a story about anxiety or I didn't do it right or even this webinar isn't going right, or everybody hates me, or I, whatever the story is, or I'm not really whoever I say I am, I'm a charlatan, I'm a fake. And, um, you know, and then notice what happens from that when I have that story. But if I can really just sit here and take my seat in the midst of it all, and I can say, wow, I'm noticing that they have a general sort of reaction to when issues around race come up, I kind of collapse or I'm in shame, I can also bring awareness to that from a somatic perspective and say, well, that's fine, shame. I know you're here to teach me something. I know that you're here to invite me and call me in to unpacking some of what it means to do this work. Because as uncomfortable as it can be for me when I recognize that I'm feeling shame, because shame feels bad, 
whereas grandiosity and sort of blaming others feels generally good, it can kind of be invigorating, that sympathetic nervous system, you know, gets activated, that the internal piece of shame that brings us sort of down, it can feel, it can feel icky. And so what I'm inviting us into is thinking about, even though it feels icky, are we attached to it in some way because by making us feel bad, we somehow think we're doing something good? It's a theory, a theory of like moral injury that I've been playing with when a soldier goes to war and there is, you know, the killing of children or the rape of women and they come home and they did those actions on orders of, of the military, for example, there's often a sense of moral injury, like I did something wrong. And as inheritors of a white skin privileged or white bodied personhood, especially as a therapist, sometimes we carry some of this piece of, I feel like I did something wrong, but I didn't really do anything because my ancestors didn't really own slaves and, oh wait, I have now you know, this, this privilege and this, you know, entitlement that other people who are people of color maybe don't have access to or don't, don't have. And then I feel bad about that. And I'm going to kind of hold on to that because I don't really know what to do. I don't really quite know how to move forward. I don't really quite know how to check and make a mistake and then give myself a reprieve and practice self-compassion. So I just feel like this is the fundamental building block of if we can say this is a gift, there's nothing wrong with you. Contrary to the original sin that I received as a Catholic, you know, Italian growing up here in, in Massachusetts, instead of saying there's something wrong with you and you have to work to earn your right to exist, I want to say there's nothing wrong with you and you could use a little work, as it's been said in mindfulness teachings. And this is the work that we're doing. So this invitation to notice, okay, that's what it's like in my body, and we can lean into doing this work together. And we can understand our nervous systems more from a somatic experiencing perspective. We can really kind of get to be familiar with the way in which we respond. When someone says race or racism, or if, if, every, if anyone ever says, you know, you're racist or, 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 you know, that was racist. How do we feel? What do you notice in your body if that's ever happened? There might be a, a, a certain kind of sensation that goes along with that. And we have sympathetic charge, which is sort of activating and leans us into moving forward. I know when I heard about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the litany of other black and brown bodies that have been killed, particularly uh, by the hands of police this summer, but also for centuries, the more that I was unpacking that, the more that I realized that, yeah, this is something that needs to be brought attention to in a different way. And the structures need to be looked at as to why is it this way. But understanding the nervous system and how it lives in me was part of that. So this sympathetic charge, when I heard those things, let me sort of lean in and say, no, I'm declaring this anti-racism work. I'm not just going to be non-racist and assume that I'm, you know, well-intentioned. Because that well-intentionality is something that Dr. Martin Luther King said, if I can actually find the quote, is, is not particularly helpful in the long run. In the long run, it can be, it can be challenging. Let me just read this real quick. 
He said, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. I'll read it again. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. And that's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in 1963 from Birmingham jail cell. And I say that because as therapists, we enter into the helping professions often because we're taught, especially in the institutions and, you know, the academic settings that we are, are, are trained in, we're taught to go and help other people. We're taught to go lean into, you know, help support communities of color. And while that's important at a certain level, without doing it from the place of having interrogated whiteness and our own social location and positionality, it's actually very unhelpful. And one of the things that can be very important for us to begin to learn how to do is how do we look at our own social location and our own place in the world in a way that helps us understand that all of what we do is coming from a certain perspective based on our own lived experience. So when we look at this chart, for example, it is an invitation for you to say, where am I on this chart? Privilege, power, access, and resources in the center. Because racism, as according to the, the People's Institute, which I think is a good, a good definition, is about power plus prejudice. So it's about really a system of dominance and who's in and who's out. And you'll see that white, male, ruling wealthy, US born, heterosexual, Protestant or Catholic, able-bodied, that these are here and they're centered. But as we move out, as we go back, as we are middle class, working class, as we have disabilities, physical, sensory, mental, as we practice other religions, Judaism, Muslim, Hindu, as we are lesbian, pansexual, queer, that we somehow are decentered out of this and therefore given less access to power. And as we understand where we are here, especially as white or light-skinned privileged therapists, we can understand more about what it is that we're missing. Because we only sometimes see the world from our perspective unless we've interrogated the systems that afford certain people cisgendered, heterosexual, white males in particular, more access. And so when we're doing this work and we're looking at our nervous systems, we may begin to kind of see, wow, I'm kind of numbed out. I'm sort of dissociated. I'm sort of not aware. I haven't really looked at this. I'm Italian, I'm German, I'm Scottish, my background is this or that, but I'm American in this case. Of course, we have international callers. However, to what degree is our Americanness a disassociation from our history, our assimilation as a requirement to fit into this rugged individualism structure? And so there's sort of a, a, a kind of a inherent separation or numbness that we can feel and almost a cognitive dissonance when we see folks suffering who aren't like us, 
where we sort of have come to accept it. We don't like it, but we've come to accept it. There's a part of us that thinks that there's something wrong with that. A homeless person, someone who's unhoused, just like I should say someone who's enslaved or had been enslaved as opposed to slaves, right? Just look at the language, the imperialist sort of Viking dominant language, you know? Everything is a noun as opposed to a verb. It's named, it's fixed as opposed to moving like a verb, right? That all of these systems are caked into what whiteness and white body supremacy are about. And the more that we become aware of some of those, we can unpack them. The more that we're able to be with our direct experience and our embodiment, the more that we're able to turn to whatever it is that's actually here physically and then also out there in the world. So the goal of this webinar, if nothing else, and the goal of the class, if nothing else, is to say, I'm enough and I matter. Shame has its purpose only insofar as that it's used to kind of let us know something's off. And usually that something off is something internal that feels separated, that doesn't feel quite in balance. But that because of that shame and that overwhelming sense of disempowerment that comes with it oftentimes, we oftentimes fixate on fixing someone else instead of interrogating here. Because like Anne Lamott says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I don't want to go there alone. Our inner critic is going, you know, 24-7 that we don't want to go there. So this is an invitation to do it together and to be able to go there together. Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory really does talk about what it means when we get into that dorsal vagal sort of shutdown. What happens when we freeze and we pull back? These are survival responses. We don't have to tell ourselves a story around what's right or wrong or good or bad with us about that. We can simply say, my body responds to being accused of being a racist by shutting down and kind of pulling away. That's fine. It's a survival response that we've had when we feel like we're under threat or under attack. Or the opposite. My body responds that. AA said that in the mock quote first. I believe that. Um, I'm sort of checking chat here and there, so I'm not totally checking chat. I apologize. Um, yes, I can give you the link to the social physicianality chart afterwards also. Um, but that idea of... Um, of being able to sort of be with that and be with, be with our direct experience, knowing that the dorsal vagal shutdown is there and knowing that we can pull back and knowing that we can also come and have a courageous, uh, energetic uh, sort of more leaning into it and getting curious about it by saying in internal family systems language, you know, Dick Schwartz, who's also a guest lecturer on the, on the class that, that is going to be offered uh, starting next week, you know, he talks about uh, the idea of calm, curiosity, you know, can we be curious instead of feeling like we have to be shut down? Can we be mindfully curious? Uh, and that goes into the piece of identifying and welcoming our parts. What if we were considering ourselves as people who had a racist or racist parts as opposed to a person who was racist, that that somehow defined us completely? Notice what happens in your body if I say to you, you're racist. And notice what happens in your body if I suggest to say to you, yeah. So what I mean hearing you say is that there's a part of you that's racist or that has racist behavior or racist beliefs. And how does that feel workable in a way that the other feels like it may need to be defended. 
And so we can discover, well, where did that part, as Dick Schwartz says, where did that sacred little being part of me that learned racism, because everything is about a need and an adaptation, when it learned that, how did it learn that? Why did it learn that? What did it need there? Was it that I had a best friend in fifth grade who was black and I was white, and then my mother said, you can't be friends with her anymore because other people are going to say things about you. And then I felt horrible about having to betray my friend and leave them there. But at the same time, I needed to stay loyal to my family and to my mother because they're the people who housed and fed me. It's an impossible choice for a child. But if we continue to act out of that place of the fifth grader version of us, and we don't do inner child work with the encapsulated child within us to then lean into where she's stuck or he's stuck or they're stuck inside, then it's very difficult for us to feel like we can be showing up today and being able to do this work without coming from that place of still feeling like we did something wrong and we didn't want to have to do that to our friend, but we had to. So using parts work, the part of me that was younger, the part of me that had that choice, the part of me that had to decide, the part of me that had to survive, the part of me that's here on the call now, able to actually unpack some of this, wanting to unburden that fifth grader who had to make that choice, wanting to unburden her or him or them, and moving into a place of saying, okay, it's 2020, I'm enough and I matter, here I am, I have more resources, yay. That's part of our liberation. And recognizing the role that parts play in our capacity to feel more balanced and connected is just that. When we give ourselves permission to be fully human, to allow all of what's here, which doesn't mean that we co-sign, that we're in love with all the parts of ourselves that may have engaged in perhaps inappropriate you know, comments or, you know, went along with a joke that we, you know, feel was a prejudicial or, you know, a a racist joke or the part of us that wish we stood up for someone or advocated for someone, but we didn't because we were kind of pulled back. Would we bring, for example, the RAIN practice, recognize, allow, investigate, and nourish that Tara Brock has popularized, one of my mindfulness teachers, when we bring self-compassion and that RAIN practice to our direct experience, we can say, oh, yes, I can be with that too. And then I can begin to unpack that. So I think we're about a half an hour in. Yeah. And I think this is a good time to pause. And we can take a couple of questions here. And then we can talk a little bit about the class. And then we can take some more questions. It's an hour. Um, Ellen. It's a 60-minute webinar, and we can also, um, you know, I can hang out for a few minutes at the end if other people have more questions, but it's technically an hour. RAIN is recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture or nourish. It's, it's been back and forth, but either way. So who did you quote regarding our messy minds? Um, oh, Anne Lamott, but someone else said that it's from um, AA prior to that. Okay, Carla, can you please explain, I'm going to the Q&A, can you please explain why you and others in leadership use the term white body or black body instead of white person or black person and others? Sure. 
I always used to say white person or black person. Here's here. Let me tell you a story. When I was applying to college, I, um, like I said, I had a lived experience as a pretty much a white Italian kid growing up with my white Italian family in my white town. My father, who's Haitian and Dominican, lived far away, and we didn't see him that much. I didn't see him that much. And so um, when I went to college, I, I, I checked off black, white, and Hispanic, even though I didn't speak Spanish, I didn't really have an experience of living around black people or people of color, even though my father was um, Haitian and Dominican. And what I learned was when I got to school for the uh, pre-freshman weekend, they, they put me into a pre-freshman weekend that was called Minority Pre-Freshman Weekend, where everyone else was, was black and everyone else um, was, was non-white. And I, and I had some confusion around that. And so I stayed for the quote unquote regular pre-freshman weekend, which is where all the white kids were. Now, the reason why I say white body or black body is because people who are othering you, meaning that they're categorizing you um, by what they're seeing and what they are experiencing of you, which is a melanated level that is non-white. So even if I identify uh, as a multi-ethnic woman or, or whatnot, it's, it's based on what other people are, it's based on what other people are seeing. So Resma Menicum, who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, who's also a somatic experiencing practitioner, uses the term to talk about what it's like in a racialized world. So we're talking about it in the context of power and privilege in a racialized world. They are black people. We are white people and we are black people or people of culture or people of color. However, it's the piece around having darker melanin that was used as the division here in the United States anyway, through Bracken's Rebellion and beyond to divide and conquer as part of what was used to extract profit and have elites garner more financial gain at the expense of people who they discounted as personhoods with three-fifths of a person owned as enslaved people and uh, controlled and then had chattel slavery and owned all of their children and created laws that would sustain things like whiteness, like black people not being able to ever testify in a court of law against a white person, white women not being able to uh, marry black men, if so, giving up their citizenship and then becoming um, also enslaved. So these are systematized pieces. So it's because the melanin level what was used by uh, Blumenbach and Linnaeus when they're, you know, doing this social anthropology, crazy scientific experiments that began to plant the seeds of what became prejudice as, as naming people who were of African descent as being less intelligent or of having, you know, less social graces or anything, not honoring any of the deep indigenous wisdom or practices, but in fact, you know, tearing them apart. That's why I say at times when discussing things in a racialized context, black body or white body or white body supremacy. Because even then, if you look at Western beauty standards, what is it that's a Western beauty standard? Thin, white, blonde, large breast, small hips. That's a Western beauty standard. It has to do with the body and what's deemed proper or what's deemed um, desirable. And so 
are, as Bruce Perry talked about in a recent podcast that I did with him, our eyes are the, you know, the sense organ that uh, takes in most of the information to our brain. And if we've been fed systematization around black or dark or brown being bad or worse, and we have, you know, connotations, even if you take those implicit bias tests, which I know from Harvard are problematic in some circles in some ways, we can also just notice that we do see color. So when people say, uh, I don't see color, I treat everybody the same. You know, when you look at the summary stages of racial identity development, which we will do in the class, which is Dr. Janet Helms's work, when you look at that, you see how insulting that is because you're actually not naming and not recognizing the uniqueness of the person. And you're kind of trying to do a spiritual bypass to just, oh, well, we're all one and we're all human. So the body has been the locus of the violence. The body, because of melanated levels, has been what has been abused, which has, which has been lynched, which has been kneeled on to death, which has been shot to death in her bed, Brianna Taylor. And it, the body has been the locus of violence. And it has been the, the, the place of generative labor and, and extracted uh, labor and humanity from white people to black people. And that, that body was used as nothing more and thought of as nothing more than a product and property, the way that you see people have, you know, animals on a farm. And so to, to name it this way is to be blunt and direct and also to sort of recognize the absurdity of it all and to also recognize that if it makes us feel uncomfortable and we notice that there's a charge there when we say black bodies or white bodies, that of course they're people. But the whole idea of being black or white is bananas anyway. I hope that's somewhat helpful. Um, can you ex please explain, okay, what do you mean when you use the word saviorism in the webinar title? White saviorism is this idea of sort of going in there like I want to, I want to go and fix something. I want to go and save someone. I don't, I haven't really done the work of interrogating my own social location, which is the chart I showed earlier. I'm going to go, because that's really what you learn in social work school. And what you learn is I need to go fix you. Missionaries, you know, everybody's going out there. I'm going to save these, these poor children. I'm going to adopt them. No. The idea of trying to somehow be good by doing things for other people in a way that is outside of your own positionality, social location, and awareness is the piece that's difficult, that's problematic. When I say to myself, I know that I'm a white-bodied person, I'm a white person, I'm a multi-ethnic person, I'm a light-skinned privileged person who's a therapist, and I'm working with communities for collective liberation, same as there but for the grace of God go I. It's me there. There's no separation. Alice Walker talks about if she saw a blade of grass get, you know, get cut, she would feel like her arm had been cut off. It, when we do embodiment work, when we let go of I'm doing something for you, but I'm doing something because you are my biosphere. I am you. We are us. This is it. There is no separation. It's coming from an entirely different place. It's less left brain. It's more right brain. It's more fully embodied. And it's, but of course, 
but of course. And then we afford people the dignity that they deserve. We ask them, what would you like? What do you need? We don't get stuck in a nonprofit you know, situation where we're, you know, creating programs and we're deciding for other people, this is what you need in your community. We're asking, we're with. So it has a different quality. The other is more, well, I'm here to save you, to do something for you because you are not me. And it has that tonal quality of like pity and elitism as opposed to we're right on the same place where I started in the beginning. I'm enough and I matter, same as, no better or worse than anyone. So the therapist isn't the one who knows anything. You're the person who's curious about everything, including ourselves. Okay, Martin, how to open up a conversation about race and gender in parity without being condoning, i.e. I'm a white-bodied cis man and it feels like a generous part of me gives others space and I need to be applauded. That feeling often shuts me down. Um, okay, this is the last question before we talk about the course, and then I'll come back to questions. Um, without being condoned, I'm a little confused by your question, Martin, but what I think you're saying, I'm a white-bodied cis man, and it feels like a generous part of me gives others space, and I need to be applauded. That feeling often shuts me down. I think what you're saying is, is there's a part of you that likes feeling valued, and there's a part of you that feels like when you do good things for other people or you feel like you're doing good things for other people, that the external validation makes you feel good in a way, but also shuts you down from, uh, or, you know, in another place, like from, from maybe doing more, because then you maybe feel guilty about feeling good, I think. So that's an interesting internal dialogue, an internal loop. And so if that's the case, and I hope I'm understanding your question correctly, um, basically, what I would say is decenter yourself. Whiteness has this tendency to always make itself feel important. I'm white. This is normative. I'm the one who has all the answers. I can mansplain. I can executive explain. I can leadership explain. I'm the one who knows stuff. And, you know, there's an expression called failing up, whether it's a white cishet man. And again, this isn't about people like an individual. This is about a system that rewards a certain kind of behavior and expects a certain kind of behavior from people. And how do we interrupt that system? Okay, so this is a pattern. This isn't about people. And we're all imprinted by these systems. That if we can be decentering and give space to, hey, I'm curious about what you as a woman or you as a person of color or you or whatever have to say, I don't need to feel like I have to come in here and center myself and my ideas. I can actually get curious and see what you bring to the table and then see if it's just as satisfying to see that by taking a step back, not out of shame, not out of um, denial, not like I'm holding myself back and I'm, you know, chomping at the bit, but out of genuine curiosity, like maybe something new can come from someone other than me. In patriarchy, I'm the one who always has to come up with the solutions and be the center of the show. But in a collectivist mindset, I can just be here knowing that we have time, knowing that you can come forward if I give more space, beautiful, and allowing for that to happen. So I hope that kind of answers the question. It was a little bit confusing the way it was typed up. Um, okay, Carla. And, and so Elizabeth and Carla, we're going to get back to you um, and Billy and Scott Bass. Um, Yes, I do know Kenneth Hardy, but we'll get back to that. 
Okay, Felix Maestro, how about the slides? Uh, okay, here we go. Embodied anti-racism. Oh, Beverly asks, why did I associate social workers with missionaries when speaking about saviorism? It's the history of social work is one that is challenging. I'm a social worker. Um, and I think that there's a similarity around missionaries and the way that people sort of go out and do things in the way that social workers, at least in my training at Fordham last year, was about, you know, kind of going into certain communities sometimes without fully checking and having uh, stakeholder buy-in from the communities that are being impacted um, by the quote-unquote helpers. That's a separate question. Uh, okay, sorry, back to the slides. I just caught that and I wanted to address it. Embodied anti-racism. I'm going to take a moment and become more embodied. I've been talking a lot. Invite everybody to do the same thing. Feel your feet on the floor, your seat in the chair, roll your neck, your head, your shoulders. Feel that you have joints. Notice where you are in space-time. Remember your intention for today's call. Courage, patience, curiosity. Find your resource in the room. Notice if you're having some feelings about me. Uh, she's crazy. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Gee, she's great. I like her. No, I don't. She's ignorant. Gee, this is a fun time to get together. Whatever. Notice all of that that's there and notice whether or not there's an attachment to that or there's some charge to whatever that might be. And then also feeling your feet on the floor and breathing. Here we are. Aware of my direct experience aware of us going through this process together. So, next week, Embodied Anti-Racism, a mindfulness way for therapists and helping professionals, begins October 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Next slide, please. And here's what we're going to be covering. We'll learn in Module 1, what does it mean to be an embodied anti-racist? I can talk about that moment when, you know, I really did at the beginning of the summer, as I mentioned earlier, say, I really have to like say I'm anti-racist and I'm in, you know, the Ram Das community, which is a spiritual community. The Love Server Member Foundation um, runs the Be Here Now Network and they host my podcast, Rerooted, uh, which is about, you know, sort of finding our own inner dignity and goodness. And there's a lot of folks like sort of part of that community that have found that wait, Ram Dass was all about love. He wasn't anti-anything. He can't be anti-racist. These are some of the comments that I've heard. And the interesting thing to me is the reason why we're saying anti-racist is because racism is actually the normative inheritance. And so we think that we're just in a loving place, but when we look more deeply and unpack the structures and the systems of oppression of white supremacy, we realize they're tilted in the favor from redlining to Jim Crow laws to all these other things, to the way in which certain populations are disproportionately affected by COVID due to health disparities and pre-existing conditions that have to do with intergenerational trauma, epigenetics, and a variety of factors. We have to say, okay, I'm going to be anti-racist, which means I'm pro-love and pro-connection. Being non-racist, isn't helpful because it sort of denies that recognition of we're working within a system here. And so that's that piece. Module two, whiteness and privilege, systems that we've inherited. It just continues to unpack that. What is whiteness? 
in my podcast, I just um, last week published uh, with Dr. Jacqueline Badalora. Uh, she wrote a book uh, about essentially who invented white people, the birth of a white nation. What, what is this about? And what does it mean to have privilege that we don't even know we have? Right? We don't even recognize this. I know that there's, um, I think her name is Robin D'Angelo. She writes a book about white privilege. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of, of maybe perhaps the way that she's teaching some of this. However, I do recognize that the idea of having privilege means that you don't recognize that you have a facility to go and do things that someone in a racialized white supremacist world um, and, con you know, constructed by whiteness who lives in a black or brown body necessarily doesn't have. And so we'll talk more about the laws and the history and things like that. Racial identity development I referenced earlier is Dr. Janet Helms's work. And for white people, we'll look at where are we on that stage? Some of us have done a lot of work around anti-racism or some of us have really unpacked a lot of history, but some of those diversity and inclusion initiatives that we had before taught us to be polite, taught us to be PC. And there's a lot of sort of seething resentment underneath the surface sometimes, or again, fodder for shame. Oh, I know. We have such a terrible history. And yet at the same time, when we come into a full awakening, when we're sort of on that path, sort of like the mindful path, like the noble eightfold path, if you know anything about Buddhism, is just this path of awakening. You're coming into the awakening of, yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it's not fun. Yeah, this is what I inherited. Yeah, I thought I was doing it right. No, I wish I was doing it differently, but I don't know what to do or how to do it differently. To a place of actually humility as opposed to shame and curiosity and then like an ownership of wherever you're at and moving toward um, a, different, a different stage. Allyship kind of gets into what I was talking about earlier around for or with, um, with the missionaries. Am I in the same boat with you? Because we're not all in the same boat. Again, my mentor, Jack Cornfield, says, yeah, some of us have yachts, some of us have canoes, some of us are clinging to a piece of driftwood in the middle of the ocean. You know, we are, in a way, all human, but at the same time, it's these systems that have afforded some access versus others. And unless we're aware of our place, our social location and positionality within this system of whiteness, then we aren't necessarily perceiving things or being as helpful as we could be if we were more curious. And then the final piece is the grief work, collective and the individual. Um, assessing community needs is essential. Yes, yes, yes. Was thoroughly relational individuals actually, okay, sorry, I'm getting, yes, of course I'm making generalizations, Martha. I appreciate that. Whole fields that are actually quite diverse. Of course there are fields that are diverse. You know. Yes. Okay. I'm not going to get off track, but yes, Martha, I hear you. I hear you. I'm not trying to denigrate or, or say, I'm just talking about my own experience. And besides, anytime we're talking about racism or racialized trauma or institutions or power and privilege, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback. And I'm sure that, you know, it's not going to be pleasing to everyone. And perhaps I can say things better or differently in certain ways. So I take full accountability for that. This isn't easy. I wish I could just give you recipes for strawberry cake and we could all have puppies and kittens and rainbows and we weren't in a racialized world the way that we are. Um, so 
I own that, whatever it is. Um, okay, grief work, collective individual. Are we willing to be heartbroken? Are we willing to be in this place where we recognize the totality of what it means to live in a world that is this inhumane? Are we willing to recognize that beyond politics, beyond that, that the, the driving force of greed in terms of these, you know, old for-profit corporations that came over and, you know, wanted to use human beings as indentured servants, but then as enslaved in perpetuity for chattel slavery as, as property and, and really sort of dehumanized ourselves in the process as lighter white skin privileged people. How do we grieve that? How do we mourn that? How do we allow ourselves to be heartbroken in a way that cracks us open, like Leonard Cohen says, you know, the crack is where the light gets in, in that song. How do we, how do we open to that? And how do we scaffold that with the piece of, I'm enough and I matter, and we're doing this work together. That I am just on this path of awakening. That I'm on this path mindfully sort of leaning in with other folks to try and unpack what's here. And we can create rituals around that. We can recognize that there are things like um, Sorry Day in Australia, the Truth and Reconciliation Project in South Africa, where we can name publicly some of the things that um, are being done to at least name that there's a problem. That's why there's the call for reparations. The call for defunding the police is to recognize that the police are part of what slave patrols were. Slave patrols were created in order to reclaim property, human property. When you understand more of the history, you recognize that the very seeding of something like the modern police force is challenging and problematic because of the way in which it was created. And so that's why when people say, oh, well, we can move toward restorative justice, when we can look at other kinds of, um, you know, reconciliation and reparation, um, that we can imagine something new. Okay, next slide. Uh, what is included? You have five pre-recorded teaching modules in the course, meaning five lectures from me on each of the five topics. You have five live Q&A calls, which are primarily about you being able to talk whatever it is that you need to say. Um, you know, you have questions about, you might say, I'm in a board meeting with someone and I don't know what to do about this promotion or I feel like I should take this job or I shouldn't take this job or I feel like I need to give back the promotion to someone who is qualified, but a person of color who didn't get it or whatever. Maybe you want to unpack that and talk about that in a Q&A call. Maybe you want to talk about your somatic reactions to the way that it might feel when you have a woman of color who's, you know, trans black woman as your boss and, and you're having a challenge taking orders from that person. I mean, come on. It's okay. We can talk about it. Um, because it, it, it's funny when you're a white person, sometimes you find someone who is a person of color in a position of authority. You may not even realize that you have like feelings about that. You have somatic reactions about that, but that's okay. That's why this course is here. We can talk about it. Um, you have private membership site to access transcripts and downloads. And um, 
yeah, you can chat amongst each other. You can leave comments and things like that. I'll also provide you with the resource list of a whole bunch of things that are books and articles and further trainings and teachings and institutes that you can go to, all of which kind of I've engaged in that I found helpful over time. And um, you can go to the next slide, Felix. You get five. Okay, I know people are leaving. I guess we're wrapping up. Um, five expert training videos, accepting your assignment with Jack Cornfield. His basic point is, hey, you know what? If you have privilege, this is just an assignment that you're accepting. This is something that if you want to lean into doing this work, you can do it or not do it, but it would be a nice thing if you picked it up and could do it. Sociocultural and sociopolitical considerations for mindfulness with Dr. Shelley P. Harrell. Um, she talks about using mindfulness as a way to lean in to um, doing anti-racism work. Whiteness on the Couch with Dr. Natasha Stovall talks very specifically about what can you do to bring up in therapy sessions with your clients, issues around race and racism, and how they live in the body and how to use the theories that you're already practiced in, whether it's psychoanalysis or whether you're a sensory motor psychotherapy person or a Hakomi person, or you studied cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever it is, how do you, how do you use your tools to unpack racism and race? Everyday Racism with Susan Cousins, she's actually from Wales. She talks about the experience of um, what does it mean to have to suffer from things like a hate crime? What does it mean to be resilient there around um, taking care of yourself mindfully as a person of color, uh, given the fact that we're living in a racialized world? And then, of course, Dick Schwartz, The Racist Part in You, which we referenced a little bit earlier. And um, to just sort of welcome that and then unpack that and work with that. Um, Next slide, or if that's the end, I don't know. Uh, yep, five pre-recorded teaching modules, five live Q&A calls, downloadable replays and transcripts, and the bonuses with those five guest lecturers, Jack Cornfield, uh, Shelley Harrell, Natasha Stovall, Susan Cousins, and Dick Schwartz. And so really, it's a five-module course. It's only 347. It's 227 if you're um, BIPOC and it if you want uh, to sign up your organization, I think we might be able to do some kind of a uh, slight discount or something like that for a larger group. Um, and I don't know. It's not about the money. I don't even know that I'm really going to get paid for this. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. I don't really know. I'm doing this because if there's anything that I can share about my journey, the point about it is that it's been difficult for me to do it by myself, but I've done it. And then I've kind of realized that once you sort of start to see it, you can't unsee it. And so that I've just continued to unpack it. And I just want to be able to share that with you and maybe do it together so that we can alleviate this in some ways. And then the whole point is collective liberation to live in a better and more balanced world. Right. It's that if we become different inside, if we see things a little bit differently, if our glasses aren't so foggy all the time, if we can actually see through them then we can move forward. And when we work with anyone, whoever it is, we're coming from a place that's more grounded. We're coming from a place that's deeper. We're coming from a place that honors us, but also honors all life, all beings. So, all right. Um, I think that's our time for today, but I'm willing to stay on the call if anybody wants to hang out. Felix and Brian, you tell me what you guys would like to do. Maybe we could push it a little bit longer, take some more questions. Okay, great. How about another 10 minutes. 
Um, I'm fine with that. You're okay. welcome, everybody. Yeah, please. Um, yeah, please take the class if you want. And I also have free resources like the Rerooted podcast on the Be Here Now um, network that you're welcome to to look at. And um, my website has a lot of anti-racism resources on it, and that's maximeclarity.com. M-A-X-I-M-E Clarity.com. C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. And uh, I know this isn't perfect, right? Um, I'm on my learning journey also with you. So. Um, if I've offended anyone and there's a, a, an oops on my part, an ouch, um, there's an oops over here. If there's an ouch over there, I know that intent and impact are not the same thing. And if I have impacted negatively any of you from my comments thus far and you have more questions about that, feel free to contact me on my website and share some of your feelings and thoughts with me and we could try to unpack them more or take the class and we can talk more in the class. So, um, back to questions, Elizabeth. I am particularly interested in the concept of appropriation. We live in a culture that has enfolded aspects of many, many cultures, so I'm having difficulty understanding how to navigate this one. Well, okay, I like to use the example of the Kardashians. When you look at, you know, the, the Kardashians, um, I'm not saying that, I mean, they have a beautiful Armenian culture, actually, which I think is quite amazing, because I used to have a partner who was Armenian, and I loved Armenian culture. It was very rich. Um, but what they've done is market and sort of exploit in many ways or appropriate what you would see is black culture between the braids, between, you know, the way in which they dress, the way that they do lip injections and, and, you know, sort of derriere, you know, heightening or whatever it is that's happening down there. I come by it quite naturally. Thank you very much, which you cannot see, which is fine. But um, that is quite literally my inheritance is to have uh, yeah, junk in the trunk. So the point being is that when you look at someone like the Kardashians and they are sort of pushing forward and reaping benefits, I mean, I think what's her face there? Kylie is a billion dollar woman now um, based on using another person's culture, another culture for your own benefit without sort of giving it it's due and making space for it. That's why you see someone like Rihanna um, really laying claim to, to her uh, right as a pop singer to be a, uh, a black woman who is trying to empower other, other women as a domestic violence survivor and things like that, um, that she can do things in a way that's appropriate because she doesn't need to ask for permission. The appropriation versus the appreciation is the piece around, does someone else have consent, did they consent to my use or exploitation, extrapolation, my taking of their culture? And if I, they didn't consent, if I didn't ask them, then that's on me. And yes, we're blended, but at the same time, is there a way that I can go back to my roots? One of the things you can talk about is where did you come from and what's your culture? What's your ethnicity? What's your dress? What's your history, whether you're from Estonia or whether you're from, you know, Fiji or whatever it is, even if we're American, that what's the cost of, of having given that up? And so, yes, we are a multiracial and a multicultural society, but what's ours and what isn't? And when it isn't ours of origin, uh, can we ask for consent or for permission? And we just had Indigenous Peoples Day. Today is George Floyd's birthday, actually. So there's a lot of things to, to think about. Carla, so helpful. Thanks. To be clear, the webinar and upcoming courses for people who are white or fair skin privilege. Um, okay, Billy, good question. Yes, that is primarily how the course was structured for the purpose of um, creating 
more understanding and ability to interrogate whiteness. Because even if you read Daryl Wing Sue, Dr. Daryl Wing Sue, who talks about microaggressions, you know, he closes his, his sort of seminal work with the invitation for white people to interrogate and unpack whiteness. Like, leave us alone until you've done this work. And then once you've done this work, okay, maybe we can come back because I know you're going to have a different understanding. The problem is trying to do the work without having an embodied understanding of what we're really talking about. So that's kind of. However, anyone can take the class, meaning that it's, you know, we do have, uh, it's like I said, 227 for um, Black Indigenous people of color. Uh, and if it's helpful in that way, there's a lot of shadism and colorism even within communities of color. And so whether you're Hispanic and it's Meharar uh, La Raza or whether it's, uh, you know, you're light skinned or you're biracial or you don't claim your blackness or we can go into the whole thing about passing and the Octoroon society and did you have one drop of black blood and that makes you black even if you look like you're white and the whole thing. There's a whole thing about being a person of color, but having lighter white skin privilege um, that maybe you want to unpack that. So it's, it's created more for white people, yes, um, but at the same time, anybody can take the course. Um, Scott Bass, yes, Dr. Kenneth Hardy on therapists and others talking about race. I wonder if you have any comment, if you aren't familiar with his work. No, I think he's great. Uh, I think one of the one of the things he did at the beginning of the summer with the Eichenberg Institute that I was um, privileged to be able to attend is his talk about rage and grief and pride. Like we are, you know, who are we to assume that there isn't black joy and black pride? And, you know, just because we can't be prideful as white people, we're thinking, um, you know, it's arrogant, like we're being white supremacists somehow if we have pride. I want everybody who's white to be prideful of the fact that they have a history and to unpack that and to understand what that is more so than be prideful of the fact that I'm privileged and I'm, I'm, you know, entitled in a racialized world to, to have power and dominance over or someone else. So, no, I think he's great. And I was introduced to Dante King um, at that time. And I did a podcast with Dante King, which I would encourage you to look at if you like um, in that Kenneth Hardy, you know, day long. And, uh, he talks a lot about what the laws are and the systematization of what created whiteness. White isn't so useful. I understand how it developed in the U.S., but it seems to add to division and confusion, doesn't it? Well, a lot of times people don't like hearing the word incest. But what does it mean when a grandfather or an uncle rapes a child that they're related to? They're incesting them. Do I become the incesting person just because I say incest? No, it just means that I'm naming it. And because it's uncomfortable and we have a reaction, then we have a story attached to it like, oh, that's division. Oh, you're breaking up the family. Oh, you're talking about secrets. Oh, you're putting something out there that we shouldn't be talking about. No, we absolutely need to be talking about it because otherwise we're being gaslighting. So I think naming whiteness is the problem, meaning that it was constructed so you name it to tame it, and then with that awareness, you come from a different place. But you can't bypass the naming of it, the racism, the whiteness, the incest. You can't not name it. You got to name it, welcome it into the room, just like we welcome all of our parts. Oh, yeah, the part of me that's judgy, the part of me that's selfish, the part of me that's compassionate. I welcome all of them. As we do that mindfully, coming from the place of I'm enough and I matter, that defensiveness around, ooh, it's divisive. Ooh, we can't say this. White, white, black, this, that. 
we get over it. We get more comfortable. Kaylin, can you speak to racialized intergenerational trauma for white and black bodies? Yeah, I think that we become dissociated as white people because what happens when you are sitting there in the 1930s and 40s, smiling, holding hands with your boyfriend or girlfriend, watching a lynching? When you're a kid whose dad brought you to watch someone be executed and this is, I mean, when we talk about attachment theory, I'm bonding with my father over the murder of someone else because of a concocted story about what? That they looked at a white woman in a way that they weren't supposed to? And that I'm sort of trying to, as a kid, be here with my dad watching this murder and seeing everybody celebrate this. What do you think that does to a white body? The cultural somatics of now inheriting white skin privilege. Regardless of our background, regardless of our history, regardless of whether or not we were slave owners, regardless of whether or not we have anybody that we know who was present at something like that. This is cooked in. This is part of the imprinting, neurologically, somatically. So again, when we become aware of it from that place of groundedness and connection, we notice what our somatic reactions somatic reactions are, then we can start to unpack more about what it means. So racialized intergenerational trauma for black people clearly can mean a whole bunch of things. Um, we've seen, you know, people, people will talk about things like social determinants of health, and they'll say that, you know, black people have, um, you know, a predisposition to uh, you know, negative health outcomes uh, around, certain, around certain things. But it's racism that is the pre-existing condition that has set the stage for why telomeres may fray, why epigenetically there may be, you know, changes in, 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 in genetic, um, you know, variants over time, things like that. Without that, you don't get that. So if we get rid of the racism, we'll have different pieces around physical health. When you look at the way in which, boy, oh boy, Chad is so active. Um, when you look at the way in which, for example, um, you know, we talk about mental health. I mean, when you have a mother who is, san it's sanctioned, she's owned by a white landowner. She, it, he is encouraged to rape her repeatedly to father all kinds of children that he can then own as property. And that she isn't able to be with her children her family doesn't know when they're going to come or go. Furthermore, is probably taking care of other white children also, in addition to doing whatever other labor, because she's an enslaved person. What do you think that does to a family? What do you think that does over time? And if you look at Dr. Joy DeGruy's work, who's a doctor of social work, who teaches a wonderful class that's every 10 weeks or so, um, she has, she talks about positive racial socialization as a way to combat some of the insecure attachment that may happen over intergenerational fracturing within the family system like that. So there are causes and conditions, which is Buddhist language and mindfulness language for interdependence of how, you know, how things are always influencing one another. Like I said, we're processed, we're not fixed. So that's the good news. This is our intervention, naming this system that we're in. Okay, Tamara, 
how do we get a copy of this recording? Um, sure, they'll send it to you because you signed up for this. Wow, thanks for your clarity. Uh, Angela, I am an Italian-Armenian woman who is, whoops, whoa, 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 uh, experienced being on the edge, not being white-skinned body, yet so many white privilege, not being considered of color. I know, we're odd ducks, aren't we? I wonder if you can speak to this. I'm so impacted by my ancestors' extreme traumas. It's hard for me to live a normal life late, yet I feel invisible with my similar experience of oppression. I know, because you have white-bodied, light-skinned privilege here in this country, and so you feel like your trauma doesn't matter. So let me say this. This is not the trauma Olympics. It is not. Not your trauma is better than my trauma. I did a podcast with Dr. Diane Goodman, who's Jewish, and she talks about how oftentimes this comes up where a lot of Jewish folks, you know, at least in my experience, who are therapists, you know, sort of go back to say, well, the genocide and, you know, Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And yes, absolutely. And there's a unique lived experience to being a Black American that isn't present when you have a white, body in, you know, that's Jewish here in this country, that they're different traumatic experiences. So they're both valid. We make space to unpack both of them and we grieve and mourn and do our inner trauma work around that. So if it's about the Armenian genocide, which I know well, if it's about, I mean, I didn't even know that Italians were also lynched early on because Italians weren't white. Italians weren't white. Irish weren't white. We all became white. We assimilated because of the way in which these laws were set up. We were allowed to do that. But Italians were, were lynched. There was 11 of them in New Orleans who were lynched for being swarthy and for being affiliative with black people. So to unpack your own trauma, Angela, I think is really important. And to have compassion. My ancestors survived. I'm here. Like someone survived. Someone made it. Someone's here. Amazing. Beautiful. The resilience, the craftiness, the way that we know how to navigate the life that we've been given. And we're on a call like this. What could be better? What better time to start than now? To start to take care of the tender parts of us that need our attention, that we have resources to care for now, that our ancestors were not so fortunate. They would want that for us because we heal seven generations back and seven generations forward. This is all my relations. This is not us and them, black and white, you and me. This is all of us through space time. This is not just some going forward with these little pieces and it's just I, me, mine, and I'm healing my trauma. Yes, we take care of this. We water the seeds that are here. We plant the seeds, we uproot the weeds, we do our little gardening here, and then we go out and we can work with the whole field. We can work with the whole forest and then we can intermingle and our you know, roots can intertwine. That's the whole point. We can get back to equanimity and balance, which is what we really are missing. Okay, last two questions and then we're gonna go. Is there any instance where certain people's traumas need to be acknowledged apart from we before the purpose? before the people traumatized parts can be willing to be accepted, integrated into the we. Yes, I think I actually just spoke to that. Take care of your own trauma, meaning do that, work on that, and either concurrently or you know, subsequently, then you're gonna come from an embodied place. If you do the somatic trauma work, you actually do subcortical, you know, neural synaptic unlockings and, and then relockings of what your meaning is around whatever traumatic incident is. If you can do good trauma work, work, you can actually shift that. So when you're showing up, doing whatever it is that you're doing that's in the helping professions, you're just showing up differently. 
you're showing up in a different way. It's less cognitive and it's just more embodied. It's just how you, how you are. How much of the training is experiential? As much as possible in the Q&A. Um, relevant to people who are not based in the UK. I am based in England. Yeah, it's, it can, it's relevant. We have a UK presenter. Um, la, okay, Daniel Lamarod's assistant. Okay, um, I'll get back to you, Daniel. Uh, the last question from Riley, how do you see education about identity? Oh my goodness, this is jumping around. I can't see people. It's like, it's like jumping around. Riley, how do you see education about identity, power, and bias with clients as part of the therapeutic work? Um, okay, I think this is the last question for now. We could go on for days. I'm, I mean, I'm happy to hang out forever, but what I'll try to do is take some of these questions and maybe answer them later if I get a download of them or something like that and post them somewhere if possible. Um, my journey was I did a lot of didactic learning. The first thing I did was I took a class called Before We Were White. And I learned about my own history as Italians or how you can unpack that so that you do the appreciation piece and not the appropriation piece and you understand what the assimilation piece is all about. And then, you know, as you learn more about the actual history, as I've learned more and more of the laws, like legally codified, you just are horrified. And then I just was overcome with grief and all kinds of things. But when you actually have some of that knowledge at your fingertips, you can really understand it affects you somatically you can understand what it is to um to realize that the cards are stacked against you if you look at uh if you're a person of color in this country especially if you look at um kimberly latrice jones there's a video link called um how can we win and it was about her talking over the summer about uh you know it's like you're giving people monopoly money but you kept taking our money and you're asking us to play this game, but if we're a person of color, you had the Tulsa massacre, you had Rosewood, you had uh, Jim Crow laws, you had uh, redlining, which means that we couldn't get access to houses, all the loans that were given out, especially, um, you know, to people, uh, you know, after the war, weren't, weren't given to people of color. How do you expect that we can actually compete and, and, and win? So I think it's really just important for people to, to realize that if you are educated about some of these things, about identity, power, and bias, um, you can show up differently in your therapeutic encounters. And you can also invite other people to kind of be courageous. Even your white clients, you can ask them, well, what do you think? Does that have anything to do with the system of power? Does that have anything to do with you know, a hierarchy? What are you noticing there? You know, we look at bio, psycho, social, cultural, spiritual in the social work profession. What is the larger system? What's the ecological perspective? How did they fit into that? So what's their social location? Who are they? What's their personal trauma experience or history as to why they're in therapy? What's yours as the therapist and how have you been able to work with that? Not just from a transference, counter-transference perspective, but from a place of your own embodiment. And how can you invite then in your clients to be curious about that? So I would say learn as much as you can from books and classes, but don't let it stop there because it's going to be an ongoing process and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to piss people off. And so what? Keep going. You know, that's the whole point. Um, I think we have to end. Um, I would like to keep talking, but I'm afraid that probably somebody's not going to want me to do that. So <laughs> I will stop. But the questions are rich and um, 
Daniel says, my BIPOC friends have shared with me so many horror stories of their experiences with white therapists they've worked with and the therapist's lack of awareness of multicultural working and investigating their own bias. My question, what advice or guidance can you give white therapists about addressing or speaking to the ethnical and power dynamics of cultural difference in the room when they begin working with a BIPOC client from the very start, naming it with humility, care, and respect from the very start. So many therapists on the call, it would be helpful to speak to this to the benefit of clients of color who might end up working with white or white passing therapists. Okay, that's the final question, I promise. I'm closing chat, so I'm not going to see any more questions. Here's the deal. Uh, there's a couple articles about this uh, recently in Psychotherapy Networker, which I thought were decent, that I posted on my website. Just at the very least, you can say, I recognize that you're a person of color seeing me here for therapy. I know that I am white or light passing. I know we may have different cultural experiences. I may have a certain perspective on life based on this. I have done a certain amount of work around anti-racism work. I am doing a certain amount of work around this. And I'm also ignorant in a lot of ways. And I don't expect to have the same full embodied understanding and experience of what it's like to be in your body, in that melanated body. I am not going to make more out of this than need to be made out of, but I want you to know that I'm aware and that if there's something about race that you want to talk to, if you're experiencing microaggressions, if you have conflicts in your relationship with a partner who's white and you're black and you want to talk about those conflicts because you think that it has to do with whiteness or white supremacy or issues that are more culturally relevant or, or different and not just between two individuals, then I want you to feel safe enough to at least engage in that conversation with me or to bring it up with me. I'm open. I can't say I'm always going to have the perfect answer, but I am you know, willing to, to tell you that I'm, I'm open to anything that you have to to share with me, although it's not your job to teach me, it's my job to do this work on my own, which I'm doing, but it's also um, fair for you to bring any of that up, and I hope that you can and, and that you will. And I think you just be honest. You just be honest, but you don't not do the work and not read the books and not take the classes and not interrogate your own social location and say stuff like that. You do those other things and you do that. It's part of what you need to do to be a good therapist, no matter what. So, okay. That's it, people. Sending all my love to you. Um, I guess there's a part of me that wants to read a poem that I wrote, but I think I'm not going to because I don't want to take up any more time. But I'm going to pause and I'm going to bring our little bell back for anybody who's still on the call. Just taking a couple of breaths here, noticing even in my own body as we're talking that I've been activated and engaged and really thrilled to have so much engagement with you. Again, my deepest intention is non-harming, perhaps turning your attention back to your deepest intention at the beginning of this call. Was it curiosity or patience or calm? Was it courage? Whatever that was, as you feel your feet on the floor and your seat in the chair, breathing in and out, I'm enough and I matter, noble and dignified. And for me to be able to do this work, I need to fully be with my own self, all the parts of me. And the more that I'm able to do that and recognize where I sit in relation to 
everyone else, the more that perhaps I may feel as though I am not separate. We are here together. Black lives do matter, indeed. That this is not a endeavor around self-absorption, but rather one around self-interrogation and self-honesty. And that as we begin to feel strengthened to do this work, as we begin to feel as though it's okay for us to make mistakes, as we really, really lean into what attachment theorists would say, rupture and repair, that I'm able to come back to myself, that I'm able to be there with my clients, whoever they are, in whichever way, again and again, without making up a story about it, but just showing up with humility. That through this process, as it becomes more of a practice, we can scaffold this work, this inner work and this outer work by joining in it together. May all beings be safe. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. And may all beings live with joy and with ease of heart. And may we dedicate our practice time together today to the benefit of all beings. Thank you so much, everyone. I hope to see you on the class, and I would very much um, enjoy being able to answer more of these questions um, in the Q&A that will start next week on the 21st of October at 2 p.m. Eastern time, and I welcome everyone. You'll get recordings of all the calls as well um, if you happen to miss one. Thank you so much. Be well. <laughs>